Okay, good morning, everyone. My name is Adrian, if you don't know me. Uh, I'm going to go jump straight in it. We're in a series looking at this amazing book called Ephesians, which we've entitled Crafted, uh, which if you want to hear more about, I'd ask you to go and look at uh, theoasischurch.com, and you can listen to all of the talks uh, previous to this one, uh, which will kind of help set the context of everything we're looking at. But for now, where I want us to start off is actually with a mirror. You see, my guess is that every single one of us in this room, whether we liked it or not, looked in a mirror before we left our house this morning. Now, maybe you're sat there and you think, well, actually, I didn't. Well, that's okay. But my guess is that for the majority of us, I put out that we do. And when we look in the mirror, we tend to take a moment to, to, to just look and just think, what do we see? And for different ones of us, we'll either take time over it. And so for someone like me, I'm obviously going to take a lot of time looking in the mirror and thinking, cool, you're looking like you need to lose a little bit of weight there, Mr. Hurst, um, uh, which I often do, and then I continue to just live as I always do. Um, for others of us, we might just quickly get a glance, make sure our hair's not kind of standing all on end, our shirt or dress or whatever we're wearing is roughly looking okay, and then quickly exit, because we don't want to spend too long pondering in the mirror, because we, if we're honest, all have moments where when we actually look in the mirror and we see ourselves look back, we have moments of comfort and moments often when we feel uncomfortable. And over the past few weeks, Paul's, as we've looked at this letter of Ephesians, has actually been looking at at just who we really are. In order that actually we can be those that look in mirrors and actually take great comfort, whatever outwardly we might look like, because we recognize something ultimately true about us inwardly. And so what Paul's been doing is kind of referring to all of these amazing truths of who every single one of us who've centered our lives on Jesus' life, death, and resurrection are. And so he started off by saying, actually, when you look in the mirror, you need to always remember that you're chosen. There were those that God loved before the creation of everything. That's what you're to look at when you look in the mirror. He then said, we're also to be those that only are to look at one who's been chosen, but also one who has been predestined, one who has been part of God's thinking and plan before the whole of creation. That our kind of life of living kind of outside of God's best for us wasn't suddenly like God suddenly thinking, what on earth do I do here? Knee-jerk reaction, I better send my son Jesus to die in order to make a way. It says, no, no, from the very beginning of time, God had ordained a plan to rescue the whole of humanity, which we're now part of. We're those that Paul says are adopted. That when we look in the mirror, we recognize that actually we're those that God has said that we're not only chosen, loved by him, we're also now to relate to him as family. That he's our father and we're his children. That Jesus is the best older brother that we could ever have. The spirit is with us, causing us to understand the reality of this because now we're the children of God. Then last week we looked at the fact that we're those that are redeemed. That when we look in the mirror, we get to understand that we're those that were under a sentence of death. But now get to live with this sentence of life. And we get to live just with everything that life has to offer, of everything good and pleasing. And that life isn't just momentary. We're told that actually when we look in the mirror, we see eternally. That we're those that now are crafted for eternity. That we get to live now understanding that one day Jesus is going to renew everything. And we will be with him forever. 
and we get to live with the reality that is to come, shaping our reality now. And then today what we're going to discover is along with these words that as we look in the mirror to define us, we're going to find out today that we're crafted as God's possession. Fundamentally, we're a bunch of people who can spend time looking in the mirror because when we do what we're to do is to not look at the outward appearance, but to remember who God has defined us to be. Because when we start to look at that rather than what I could normally see of myself, the middle-aged guy who needs to lose a bit of weight around the tummy, is when I start to understand that, that then starts to shape everything about how I live in this world now. It changes how I relate to other people. It changes how I relate within myself. And Paul wants us to get hold of this, because as we've already sung this morning, Jesus is about building his throne, building his throne both in our lives, but throughout the world. And how he's going to do that is through people like you and through people like me. And therefore, it's fundamentally key that we understand who we are when we look in the mirror. And so this morning, I want us to look at the fact that we are God's possession. We're going to continue looking at Ephesians 1, and we're getting up to verse 11 now. I'm going to read from 11 to 14. And this is what Paul writes. In him, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation when you believed. You were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. If we skip back just to the passage for a moment. In this I don't know if you saw it, obviously I emphasized it slightly in my slightly poor way of reading. But in it, Paul seems to do two things. And I want to just make a brief comment here because actually there's a couple of reasons I believe Paul is doing it. Uh, but actually it brings to the same conclusion. So it doesn't mind matter really where you sit in terms of why he's done it. But in it, he seems to refer in eleven twelve to a we. And then in verses 13 to 14 to a you. I don't know if you put that up. So he starts off with we and then he emphasizes and says you. Now, there's probably a couple of reasons why he was doing that. The first is this. In that first passage uh, through 11 to 12, that we is suddenly different to the we that he's been speaking of throughout the whole of this chapter so far, where it's been inclusive of the whole of humanity who've centered their lives on Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. At this point, it seems as though there's a we, or a, a we that he's referring to that's actually the Jews. The way he's saying is there's a we that was those that were God's people in the Old Testament, who were God's people to reveal who God was, who Jesus first appealed to, and who were the first people to then put their faith and trust in Jesus. And we're going to find out in this letter as it goes on that this is going to be a key thing that Paul is going to teach throughout this scripture, is that, or throughout this letter, is actually there is an Old Testament people of God called Jew, and there's then everyone else, which is Gentile, but they're actually they're all now included in Jesus and given equal status. And so this moment, he starts off by saying a we, which is referring to the Jews, but then he goes on to a you that's referring to everyone who isn't a Jew. So people like us, who are Gentiles. But his point isn't to kind of say, well, there's them and us. It's actually to say, actually, there is no longer a them and us. Because what you discover is in the Old Testament, there's people who were God's possession, God's people. 
Now we find that you who are Gentiles are also God's possession, God's people, because actually together it's the same conclusion. We're all God's people. And so there's that way that Paul's kind of writing this. The other way, I think, is, is actually you see it through in the way I read it. Is that it seems as though Paul wants to get our attention. That it's this we that he's been using throughout the whole of this passage, that he's been inclusive of everyone. And so as he ends this moment of declaration of how good God is and how praiseworthy God is because of his work in us, he wants to hammer it home by suddenly taking it from the we of inclusive of everyone to suddenly kind of pinpoint every single one of us and saying, you, you, you are God's possession. Not generally just everyone. So you can go, oh yeah, it is kind of everyone, the same true for everyone, but not quite for me. No, no, he says, no, he doesn't let us off that one. He says, no, it's you as well. Everything that I've spoken about, everything that we're going to look at is about you as an individual. <coughs> but the deal is, whether we see Paul talking to Jews and Gentiles, whether we see Paul emphasizing the we to the you, the conclusion is exactly the same. He wants us to get to understand that when we've centered our life on Jesus, on his life, death, and resurrection, we become God's possession. That's the point. We are crafted as God's possession. We are God's possession. So if we skip forward, God's possession, verse 14, redemption, we've been redeemed of those who are God's possession. Paul wants us to understand it. We don't belong to any old person. We belong to God. I want to introduce you to someone. Chewbacca. There's a picture, just so I knew he's quite small. You might not be able to see him. Chewbacca, why have I brought Chewbacca? Now, this is Chewbacca. For those of you who don't know it, I'll educate you. Chewbacca is a key character in the Star Wars epic stories, taking six films, originally three. Three others were poorly made. We'll see what they do with the one that goes on at the end of this year. But this Chewbacca is my Chewbacca. I bought him, saved up my pocket money, age nine, 31 years ago, And I went to Debenhams, where it was the only place you could purchase Chewbacca. All the other toy shops in the town where I was born, Bedford, had sold out. There was a rumour in the school that Debenhams had Chewbaccas. No one had a Chewbacca in my school. And so I pestered and pleaded with my parents to say, please take me to Debenhams. They probably don't remember this. Key moment of my life. And (laughs) my parents are in the room, for those of you who don't know this. And... I went there and I, I dragged them with me and I was able and I, f- I went through all of the different figures that there and there was this Chewbacca and I bought him and I took him home and I didn't leave him in a packet because that's nuts. Why does anyone leave toys in packets? The point of a toy is to play with it. So I peeled the packet off and he became the hero of every story, the Wookiee from Star Wars. The- <laughs> Those of you who don't know that, that's the best impression you're ever going to hear of a Wookiee. The deal is, 31 years, he was around. I played with him for ages. Not for 31 years, I want you to know. But um, I cherished him. I looked after him. I made sure that he'd, whatever adventure he got up to with the others, Han Solo, Luke Skywalker, Princess Leah occasionally, um, that, we'd, that he'd get cleaned off because often it was in the garden he needs to get cleaned then it got to a point when I was about 18 no it was a bit before then um I was about 13 and it wasn't cool anymore to play with Star Wars 
And so all my Star Wars went in a box. And that's where they stayed. And I remember my mum talking to me, saying, there's a kid up the road and he wants to play with some stuff. Can we let him play with your Star Wars figures? And I said, well, let's see. And um, he played with one figure and he pulled his arm off. Exactly. Did you hear that? I heard it. I don't. <gasps> and she said, you know what I did? I took him away from him. I said, you... <laughs> You're not playing with these. <laughs> and so they stood, sat in the loft for 20 years. Until one day I took to my parents and said, could I possibly, I think the time has come, take the Star Wars figures down. And so I took them down from the loft and I brought my son Sam into the room and I said, behold. <laughs> these are original. And we looked at the dates, the prints, some of them 1979. Some of them, like this one, a little later. And I said, these are now yours. And Chewbacca is still intact. (laughs) What I try and do is just do moments for just pause for a dramatic effect. Do you know what's brilliant there? Is that was my dad's phone. (laughs) I think... Anyway, let's leave Chewbacca there for a moment. Actually, no, let's put him in my pocket. I think he'd like to sit there for today. What am I telling you about this? You were wondering. Some of you are thinking, why on earth did I come here? There's, the deal is Chewbacca's just a toy, isn't he? I do know that. I know he's not real. And I know, actually, it doesn't really matter if he got broken. It doesn't, really. <laughs> But I did own him, and I did cherish him, and I did look after him. See, the problem is when we hear that we're God's possession, we can think, well, I don't want to be a possession. I don't want to be an object. I don't want to be owned. I'm like free. I'm an individual. I I want to be cared for. Yeah, the adoption family part. Yeah, I can take that. Yeah, I get to relate to God as a child. But a possession? I, I don't want to be a possession. Yet if we don't seek to take hold of the fact that we are God's possession, we begin to lose sight and lose out on these immense truths of how God wants to treat us. Because actually, when you're a possession, it's all about who owns you. We need to understand what it means to be owned by God. See, God, in owning us, cherishes us. Romans 5.8, it says this, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, God's relationship with us, his want to have us as his own, is all out of love and delight in you and in me. That's the starting point, that he just cherishes us. He loves us with a love that is beyond eternity. That he's an owner, a one who desires our best. Romans 8, 32, he who did not spare his own son, but graciously gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? That the starting point of God's relationship with us, God's desire for us to be his, was in the sacrificing of his son. Jesus, who lived, who died and rose again. Yes, he did rise again, but there came a moment in history where actually a relationship that had existed for all eternity was broken for a moment. As the Father and the Son and the Spirit worked out the plan 
for our rescue, to deal with all of the broken stuff that we live going on Jesus. And if that was the starting point, if God was willing to give his son for our best, Paul then gets carried away in Romans and says, well then how much more? That's the starting point. How much more is God desiring our best? And is he going to look to not give us everything we need? Not everything we want. There's a difference, isn't there? There's, there's stuff I want. I really like an Audi R8. I, I do. Um, but the reality is I don't need it. What I do need is confidence in who I truly am. What I do need is peace. What I do need is comfort regardless of whatever life throws at me in order that I can do what Paul writes in Romans 5, can be one who reigns in life rather than have life reign over me. So God's one who's looking out for our best, is looking to provide us everything we need, not everything we want. He's also one who handles us with care. Isaiah 42, 3 says this. It also uh, is repeated in uh, Matthew 12, 12, where it's revealed about who Jesus is. It says there's a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. God's one who knows everything about us, knows our strengths and our weaknesses, knows the things that we feel frail about, the things that we hide from others, the things that when we look in the mirror, we try and clothe away. And God's one who says, you know what? I know all about that. I'm not going to break you. I want my best for you, but I know how to deal with you. So you, when you are bruised, don't break. And he's one who is everlasting. See, the deal is with Chewbacca, we kind of know it, don't we? That there did come a day where he was no longer one that I wanted to play with, which you were relieved about. Because if I was confessing this morning, oh, I play Star Wars every day, you'd be like, what? But he, it got a point where that was it, done. Pass it on to someone else who can take care of him. But it was done. The thing with God is he's never done with us. That actually, when even this passage, when we're told that we're the God's possession, the, the kind of point of us being God's possession is we're now God's possession for eternity, that one day we will be redeemed fully to him. And we'll then spend eternity on a new earth where God dwells forever with him. And in that place, we will always be his. See, when we understand that we belong to this God, a God who cherishes us, who desires our best, who is seeking to handle us with care and is never, ever going to give up on us, is never, ever going to pass us on to someone else. The Father, Son, and Spirit are continuously always going to love, cherish, and look after us. We understand what it is to belong to him. We understand that actually to be God's possession isn't a devaluing moment. It's actually a moment of us understanding how valued we are. And Paul wants us to get hold of this fact. And he wants us to live with it with a deep sense of confidence, of assurance. Because the thing is, sometimes we can think, well, is this just something in my thinking? Do I, am I really God's? Do I really belong with God? And yet Paul writes this in verse 13. And you were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. See, Paul wants us to understand that as soon as we put our faith and trust in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection... We forever belong to God. It's not a wishful thinking moment. It's actually a truth that's to change our lives forever. 
And yet sometimes it doesn't feel like it. Maybe it's because something we've done. Maybe it's something we're struggling with. And we can have those moments of just thinking, but do I really belong to God? Is this stuff really true about me? And it's in those moments that Paul wants us to gain confidence, not just by battling it within our mind, but actually understanding that God has provided for us. See, God has provided for us by labeling us. In verse 13, it says this, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Paul wants this to be clear. As soon as you put your faith in Jesus, God who himself, who is spirit, comes inside us. I don't know if you've ever been in an open plan office or maybe you've lived in a shared uh, house situation and the point of tension seems to be milk. That's what I found when I worked in an open plan office. Milk is the point of tension. If you don't figure out how you're going to provide milk for everyone, it gets a bit kind of like a war zone. And so there's two ways you go. Either everyone puts in and a kind of common pool milk container is provided with milk in or it's all out for themselves. And if you're in an all-out-for-yourselves moment, which I've been in in some open plan offices, not within Oasis, other proper jobs I used to have. And in those <laughs> open plan office moments, is what happened is everyone had had their milk, and it was named Permanent Marker. And what it did is it did a few things. That When you opened the fridge, you suddenly saw who owned which milk. And also, if you used their milk it then would be a moment where they'd come over and say, ah, that's got my name on. I can authenticate this is my milk because it has my name on. What are you doing using it? It would be that moment. It was also meant to be a deterrent. So when you look through the fridge at all the different milks, you only took yours because the rest of them were protected because they were all named as someone else's. God decides to say, I want you to know you're mine. I want you to know you're mine, not by writing on you, but by God giving God into us. That God himself comes and dwells within in order that we'd know that we're his. And he does it in order that we'd know we're those now that are named as his, that we belong to him, that the spirit comes and dwells within in order that we'd know that we're now those that are authentically in relationship with him. In order that we'd know we're now those that are under his protection, the spirit is longing to lead us. Now, in it, it isn't that we've got to do something magic. It isn't that we've got to say, oh yeah, I believed in Jesus and now, now I'm going to wait till the spirit comes. No, Paul says, as soon as you put your faith and trust in Jesus, God says and breaks out and says, now I make you mine and I cause who I am to come into you, the spirit. And this spirit, as Paul said, is the promised Holy Spirit. The promised Holy Spirit you see throughout the Old Testament being spoken of. Prophet Joel says, one day, the spirit will be poured out on all flesh. We haven't got time to look at all of this. Ezekiel 32, it says, I think it is 32, quiz me afterwards. And it says there that this God says he's going to put his spirit within us in order that our hearts that are hard will become hearts that are flesh. Not out of our kind of willing something to happen, but because God himself, by his spirit, comes and dwells within. You find Jesus, when he's walking around the planet, says, you know what, there's going to come a day where I'm not here anymore, but it will be good for you because I'm going to send one who will be your comforter, your counselor, who will come and draw alongside you. I'm going to kind of send one who's going to be like rivers of living water welling up from within. So we get to Acts 2 and we find that the spirit comes on all disciples. And there's this moment of what God had promised happens. Those that believed receive the spirit. Now in it, 
It isn't that Paul wants to think, okay, there's this spirit that sealed us. Okay, I'll just kind of battle on with knife. No, it's a, a spirit that we're invited then to taste. See, there's an invitation. So if we go to the next slide, the invitation is this, verse 14. The spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. See, God has caused the spirit to come within us in order that he would allow us to taste everything that is to come. Everything, if you were around last week, I'm not going to repeat last week. If you weren't around last week, sorry, go and listen to it online because it will do you the world of good to listen to it. That everything we have to look forward to in the eternity to come, the Spirit is longing to reveal to us in the now of this moment. I don't know if you've been around the ball ring. And when you go around the ball ring, if you've not, there's the ground floor moment and there's this pretzel stand. My kids and Lucy absolutely love the pretzel stand. I'm not a massive fan. But the pretzel stand, why it's pretty cool is they have this big platter and they stand kind of with eyes loose in Hugo. And um, what they're doing is they're giving you a taster and they, they go around kind of looking slightly pitiful so you kind of take pity on them. And they want you to take a bit of pretzel, a tiny little bit. And when you take it, what they're saying is, have this bit of pretzel, eat it. And then once you've eaten it, go and buy the rest. Because when you taste it, you think, well, that's good. Now, if you had that little bit of pretzel, you thought, hmm, that tastes good. A bit of cinnamon, very nice. And so you go over to the pretzel stand, and as you go there, so I've just had a taste, and they said, here you go, cheeseburger. You'd be like, what? That's got nothing to do with pretzels. Why are you causing me to test pretzels when you've got a cheeseburger? Sometimes we can think with the spirit that it's all a bit mystical. And we think, oh yeah, what the Holy Spirit's going to do, some mystical thing out there that we kind of get something, but it's got no content. It's nothing to do with ultimately what we get. And what Paul's saying here, it's just as if you taste the pretzel, you expect to get then the pretzel that's being tasted, that with the Spirit, what the Spirit is doing is he's causing you to taste something that one day you will fully see. So we find throughout Scripture, this is what was revealed. We're going to skip through this very fast. You have to look out the passages afterwards. So we find the Spirit comes in order that we can have no condemnation. Romans 8, 1, 2. The Spirit's there coming to bring within us a sense that we are no longer guilty because one day we'll face God face to face. He is 100% perfect and holy. And yet knowing that moment, we have full confidence before him. And the Spirit comes to bring that reality now. That we're children of God, all that we've already spoken about. The Spirit is coming within us in order that we be those that are able to cry, Abba, Father, Romans 8, 14, 15. That we know that we're loved by God. Just to say, William's doing an excellent thing at this moment. If you've got a phone, just take a picture of this because it just really helps. I do this all the time to remember things. Just take a photo, then it's there forever. Um, children of God, freedom, 1 Corinthians three seventeen. We sung about this this morning. The Spirit comes within us in order that we know we're free. There is nothing inhibiting us now. That's an invitation to continue to taste it, to understand that fear doesn't have to ruin and rack our lives, that what we think of others might think of us doesn't need to, just another element of fear. But there's ability that Spirit's coming in to break out us into the freedom that one day we'll always have. Power, Ephesians 1, 19 to 20. We'll get to look at this in a few weeks' time. This is phenomenal. The power that raised Jesus from the dead is now within every single believer. The power that one day will cause and eradicate every illness and suffering is at our disposal now. Next one, comfort. John 14, 16. The Spirit comes in order that we would know comfort. That comfort that's promised at the end, Revelation 21, that God himself will come and wipe away every tear from our eyes. 
one day when we face him. And yet we get to taste it now by the Spirit. The Spirit is longing to come and comfort us. Joy and peace, Romans 15, 13, gives us a double whammy that we get to know through the Spirit, a deep sense of joy in God, regardless of circumstances. Not some fake smile, Christian moment. Oh yeah, life's great. That's not that. So the Spirit wants us to taste and know one day we'll know joy beyond anything that's ever been known or seen. That's what's going to happen when we meet God face to face. I don't know what you think it's going to be like. I don't think it's going to be a big downer moment. No, I think we're suddenly going to experience joy like we've never, ever experienced. Every moment of this life where we thought, surely that was the best it could ever be, we suddenly realize, man, that was so nothing compared to what it is here. And yet the Spirit is wanting to long to come and bring us that sense of joy in the now. That deep sense of peace and reassurance. Regardless of circumstances, the spirit that gives us peace that Paul writes in the Philippians is beyond our comprehension. This is what the spirit is longing to do within us. Because we belong to God. And God doesn't do it as say, you belong to me, now figure it out. He says, no, you belong to me now. I've sealed you with my spirit so you'd always know it. I give you my spirit so you can continuously drink of him. We're going to find this later on in Ephesians. Paul will say, don't get drunk on alcohol. Why? Because it's nuts. You've got the spirit at your disposal. Why would you not be drinking of him? So we drink deeply of the spirit because it changes who we are. And the thing is, we could leave it there. I want to leave it slightly differently because Paul leaves it slightly differently. Because ultimately what it means when we belong to God is that we become his trophies. Verse 14, we become those who are to the praise of his glory. When you give someone a trophy, it does two things. It becomes a celebration of their achievement and it becomes a marker of their achievement. That's what it does. A celebration of their achievement a marker of their achievement. Now, at this point, I'd love to bring out a big trophy I've won. This isn't a pity moment. I haven't won any. I was looking for that, really. (laughs) If anyone wants to buy me a trophy, just make up the title. Just give me it afterwards. (laughs) Um, The reality is this, though. If you've put your faith in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, you've become God's possession. And as God's possession, you aren't some sort of toy like Chewbacca. You've become a trophy. A trophy that is labelled by God, with God, the Spirit. In order that we taste and see that he's good. But in such that we ourselves would become his trophies. A celebration of what he's done in our lives. So we're those that are continuously celebrating what God has done in us. But also we become trophies of what God has done so that others can look at us and see how good God is. I don't know what you see when you look in the mirror. But my desire is, Paul's desire is, what we see are trophies. Trophies of God's grace. No credit to us. Everything to him. So that when we look in the mirror, regardless of what's going on on the outside, that we walk out of our front doors understanding this is a moment where I get to walk into my office. I get to walk into the school playground. I walk in my street, walk in the benefit office, walk in my group of recovery. And in that moment, say, just through how I live, I'm a trophy of God. I get to celebrate in all that he's done in me. And I get to reveal everything of him. My question then, 
Do we see ourselves like that? Are we living like that? Can I pray for us? Just close your eyes where you are. God, I thank you that in sending your son Jesus to live, to die, and to rise again, it wasn't so that we would live unchanged. It was in order that it would change everything about who we are and everything we do. And Jesus, I, I thank you that your desire is not that we then live in this moment just simply waiting for you to return. That Jesus, you've caused us as we live with you at the center to then be able to live understanding more and more what it is to be yours. That spirit, you're longing to lead us into more and more of what we have in God, to taste everything of the new world that is to come in our world of now. In order that we be those that walk tall, not out of pride, but out of humility, understanding that you have called us your trophies and that your cabinet is the earth and you long to fill this earth with your trophies. And I pray, God, would we be those that reveal continuously in the settings that you've uniquely placed us, what it is to celebrate in what you've done in us and also what it is to reveal all that you've done through us. I ask this for your glory and your glory alone, Jesus. Amen.